if you uh, if you get invited to something where there are no rules, where there is total freedom for, for everybody, do you actually want to go to that party? Or are you going to decide to stay home? I can't get enough of that quote from Brian Stelter. CNN's grandest pseudo-intellectual. I can't get enough of that. Total freedom for everyone? Well, we can't have that. That's just the worst thing in the world. How dare you think we could have absolute freedom for everyone? Well, that's just, that's just absurd, I tell you. Completely and totally absurd. It's stunning. Stunning to see the amount of people engaged in the levels of hate that they are for Elon Musk purchasing Twitter. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. How are we doing, everybody? Facebook, Tony Katz Radio. Find everything at TonyKatz.com and, of course, Rumble.com slash Tony Katz. I was, I was looking for my harumph sounder there, Producer Ari. I couldn't find a harumph. Harumph, harumph, harumph. That was close enough. How crazy have, have people gone? Well, it's been a total meltdown. Liz Wolf joins us right now of Reason.com. Uh, she has got uh, the piece Elon Musk buys Twitter, Twitter's biggest egos melt down. And Liz, that's the story. I mean, never mind what uh, I guess everyday folk like you and me are doing on on Twitter where hashtag goodbye Twitter was trending yesterday and was hilarious and insane. The egos, whether it be at MSNBC or CNN and and, uh, political places, they've lost their minds here. Absolutely. We saw the now discredited Black Lives Matter activist John King calling uh, Elon Musk's uh, bid to purchase Twitter a white power grab, you know, white supremacy, implying that it's some kind of race relations thing. When in reality, we've never heard Elon Musk even talk about race relations in this country. It's not really on his radar. He's from South Africa, a place with a very different and troubled history of race relations. Sean King was was offering up stuff like that, uh, which is it's pretty uh, libelous, if you ask me. But then so many other people were just dissolving into hysterics, talking about how Elon Musk purchasing Twitter might be lethal. People might die from this. It's it's really astonishing how many people have lost their minds when, honestly, some of the changes might be relatively marginal. The changes might involve Elon Musk deciding not to deplatform the New York Post when they publish good reporting about the Hunter Biden laptop story. It might be things like that. It might be Donald Trump being replatformed or other people whose accounts have been permanently banned or suspended being replatformed. But we don't really know yet. And that's that's the point I have been making uh, here on the show, on my video series at, at Rumble. I am not holding Elon Musk up as some kind of savior because I haven't seen yet what he's going to do. What I have seen is the response to even the threat of what Elon Musk might do. And just the threat has led uh, to a level of insanity from Elon Musk, from from Ari Melber, and a whole host of others. Talk about the level to which uh, the the political left, or or let's call it the power brokers, maybe because maybe that's a better way to think of this. Uh, they see this as a threat to their fiefdom. Yeah, the thing that's really sad about this is the degree to which people sort of continuously descend into the most hyperbolic possible sensationalist rhetoric whenever there's any political issue that's polarizing, 
We saw this years ago with net neutrality debate, something that's very wonky that a lot of people aren't tuned into. But a whole bunch of people on the left said that, you know, people will die as a result of changes to net neutrality. That's not something that happened. And it is important that we be really careful with the types of things we say. In terms of how Elon Musk will change Twitter, there's a lot of interesting proposals being floated that a whole bunch of coders and and people on the tech side are very interested in, like making Twitter's algorithm open source, which allows a little bit more transparency in that arena and for people to understand the content moderation decisions that are making. So honestly, what Musk might be doing is bringing more of Twitter's operating processes out into the open, which is something people on the left should really be pretty supportive of. Talking to Liz Wolf of Reason.com. It is amazing to see the people who were just a few years ago the most interested in transparency now supporting the idea of big business and being completely secretive and not sharing the types of things uh, that you're talking about this this switch has been uh, stunning and and really incredible to watch except if you've been watching long enough extremely uh, predictable let me share this with you this was uh, Stu Varney this morning there on uh, on Fox and friends and he was mentioning a statement from senator elizabeth warren make it profitable make it dynamic make it go places and at the same time restore free speech when senator elizabeth warren tweets out that this is a danger to democracy you know musk is doing something right it's not a danger to democracy it's the possibility of restoring equality in political presentation the idea that the purchase of a company by somebody who was not ordained acceptable is a threat to democracy. And we have seen this now in a lot of this meltdown, uh, a, a lot of, of, of places. Uh, the, the very idea is certainly laughable that only certain people can own things, and that's uh, d- democracy. Uh, the, the chattering classes, the political classes, are we now going to see them say, well, now we have to investigate Twitter. Now we have to look into their practices. Now we have to question whether or not they're acceptable. Now we have to question whether or not there's 230 protection, Section 230. Are we about to see this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think I think we're in for a time of rampant hysteria and all kinds of overreactions. I mean, look, I'm a libertarian. I'm, I don't perfectly conform to, to right-leaning beliefs. But generally speaking, when Elizabeth Warren says something, I oftentimes believe the opposite of whatever it is she's saying. Uh, it's not a matter of me doing that dogmatically or reflexively. She's just wrong about a lot of stuff. And so the fact that she's sort of heralding this as the death of democracy is absurd. Third, I mean, this is something we need to not lose sight of this here. I am excited about Twitter embracing free speech and moving in that direction. But frankly, millions and millions of Americans conduct their lives and their political debates entirely off of Twitter. These are people who care about what the school is teaching their kids and what's going on in their church and what's going on in their communities. And those aren't conversations that are, be ha- that are being had on Twitter. Twitter is primarily reserved for politicians and journalists and some people who are onlookers. But I think we, when, when we act like a change to Twitter is the death of democracy, what they're really implicitly admitting is that they're not paying attention to the millions of Americans who don't live their lives online.
One of the other stories you have over at Reason.com is about uh, YouTube algorithms. And, of course, there's been a question of can we see the algorithm? Can we make that, as you're discussing, transparent? Can we get an idea of what Twitter has been doing about silencing certain people, certain types of speech, certain conversations, etc.? cetera? Uh, a study that you looked at says that the algorithms on YouTube don't turn unsuspecting masses into extremists. Now, I didn't know that there were people who were saying that the algorithms are doing exactly this, although I think that people have said that things online can lead to extremism. What did the study say and what did it say to you? Yeah, so the basic argument for a long time, uh, and a whole bunch of tech reporters will recite this pretty uncritically, is that there are these normal users uh, who don't really have extremist beliefs who start using YouTube frequently and become super consumers, as they're termed, of the information there. And because of YouTube's algorithm giving them suggestions in the sidebar, they go down the path of watching increasingly extremist content and becoming radicalized. The study that I found, which was conducted by researchers at Dartmouth and Stanford and elsewhere, really uh, cast a lot of doubt on that theory and basically said that happens very rarely. Oftentimes, you know, normal users are not actually fed extremist content by the algorithm. If you're watching a cat video, guess what? You're going to be recommended more cat videos. You're not going to be recommended uh, conspiracy theory QAnon type things. And so I think it's really important that we separate out how big of a phenomenon this actually is. In fact, YouTube tweaked their algorithm a little bit in 2019 to ensure that their suggestions weren't sending people down these extremist rabbit holes. So this is actually an example of a social media company or, or a media consumption company making a change on their own and that change actually being very useful. And for whatever reason, we still fearmonger about it in the tech press. I don't know why people do this. Because it gives them a job. It fills column inches. I mean, there's a never-ending number <laughs> of reasons why people will decide to share a story. It's the same reason people buy IBM or Oracle. You can't get fired if you buy IBM or Oracle. You're never going to get fired if you're talking about the thing that everybody else is talking about. But when you see a story oh, like this... There's just definitely a, there's a dishonesty there. And you would think that reporters would be attempting to be a little bit more honest about these things because it's really important that we be clear and we be accurate about it. But, you know, whether it be Elizabeth Warren or reporters trying to keep their jobs, a lot of people aren't interested in that these days. That's where, you know, when you when you talk about the kinds of people who are on Twitter, I, I, I had to let that sink in for a minute. You talked about uh, journalists, you talked about um, uh, politicos and, and, and onlookers. I, I, I disagree. I do think that there are more than that. But when, when we get into the idea of, well, here's the algorithms don't turn people into uh, the, these ex extremists. When, when you realize that maybe in, to some extent social media doesn't have that much have an effect of an effect on our life, but it certainly drives a lot of news cycles. Is there a fear amongst those journalists that you have worked with, you talk about looking at some of these things uncritically, that the real problem is, is that Twitter has been such a driver of news cycle that if there's a change to algorithm or other people are allowed to get their messages out, the news cycle might change and that's unfavorable to a desired result politically. I totally agree with that. I think that's a very good theory. You even see that fear reflected uh, in fears about Substack, the independent journalism platform that really serves as, to some degree, a competitor, siphoning off some of the top talent from places like the New York Times or the Washington Post. Some of the voices where the newsrooms turn on them and their, their beliefs are a little heterodox or their political views don't perfectly con conform with the coastal elite consensus, 
those people have been pushed out of newsrooms at places like the New York Times. And now we're making a lot of money on this independent journalism site, Substack. But then you see journalists at these mainstream newsrooms criticizing Substack constantly. I really think we have to pay attention to, you know, are these things perceived as competitors? Are they threatening journalists' bottom lines? Maybe that's why so much of the coverage is negative on this. Right. You're talking about a place where both uh, Barry Weiss and Andrew Sullivan, I believe Andrew Sullivan exists on on, on Substack, and mm-hmm. you, you saw the Substack uh, VP of comms say, if you're somebody considering leaving Twitter because Elon Musk is going to buy it, please don't work here. So they did plant, to, to an extent, their flag. It's just you, you wonder whether or not it, like, like many of these other places, can survive the pressure that exists uh, on them. LizWolfReason.com. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. We've got more. I'm Tony Katz. On Hunter Biden, the New York Post is reporting, uh, looking at White House visitor logs. There were 19 visits to the White House while the president was vice president uh, by Hunter Biden's business partner, including one with the vice president. Do you help us understand why that business partner had access and what those meetings were about? I, I don't have any information on that. I'm happy to check and see if we have any more comment. Is that right? No information on visits by one of Hunter Biden's business partners. 19 of them. No, no information on that. That's, that's fantastic. Tony Katz, how you doing? Tony Katz today. Carrie Elwes bit by a rattlesnake. I don't I, I, Princess Bride, Carrie Elwes. It always freaks me out. Did he not see it? It's rattling. Oh, he was working on his house. Uh, he, lives, he lives in Malibu. Uh, and uh, he got he got bit. That freaks me out, man. Uh, the amount of times I warn the kids, hey, 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 maybe use something to 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 lift that up. Maybe maybe don't put your hands under there. No, you don't put your hand in a hole. Oh, oh, when they used to do that, they were younger. Hmm, what's this? Stop it! Stop it! I saw a crawl. Don't do that. Freaks me out. Freaks me out. But uh, crazy story. But certainly hope the dude is okay because I wouldn't want anybody bit by a by a by a rattlesnake. It's gotta hurt. Have you ever been bit by a snake, producer? Sorry, no, I've never been bit by a snake. I just figured I'd ask. It'd be a great story. Be like, oh yeah, oh yeah, that one time at pan camp. I'd be like, really? Yeah, I um. I, I, it's got to just hurt like you would not believe. Speaking of hurt, Alec Baldwin, the video, he clearly was holding a gun in the movie Rust that he was filming before uh, the shooting and the, and the death of Helena Hutchins. You ask me, he pulled the trigger. Do I believe him when he says he didn't pull the trigger? Absolutely not. I don't believe him. At all. And I'm kind of surprised the people who do. It wasn't me. It's everybody else's fault, but mine. And please, so we're clear. Um, I I will take a look at, at the armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, and, and the first assistant director, and they could be guilty of many things. 
You got handed a firearm. Your job is to make sure that you know whether that thing is loaded or not. Don't tell me about your method acting nonsense. You, you can't do it. Nobody wants to hear it. If you're not willing to check, if you're not willing to investigate whether or not there is a, a, a projectile in your weapon, well, then whatever happens, you're guilty of. Because you were lazy. I don't see how this is, is, is visualized in any other way. Lazy people have to deal with the consequences of their actions. And I believe that Alec Baldwin has to deal with the consequences of his actions. And if there, if there are no consequences, if he can go about killing someone and be like, yeah, I'm just going to, oh, well, I'm sorry that happened. And he's going to just go about his life. That's, uh, there, there's no forgiveness for that. But this is Hollywood. And Hollywood may totally do it. Hollywood may absolutely give him the pass. I mean, these are the same people who would still work with Roman Polanski, and he was a rapist. So, I'm not going to hold out hope that these people will finally find some decency. Facebook, Tony Katz Radio, rumble.com slash Tony Katz. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. It is free. Rumble.com slash Tony Katz. Tomorrow, everyone, take care. Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Germany is sending tanks to Ukraine, so that's different. They're not going to buy Russian uh, energy. They're sending tanks to Ukraine. Maybe they figured this out, too. Maybe Putin's nuts, and they got to do something about this. Maybe they have to make this stop. They've authorized the supply of about 50 anti-aircraft tanks to Ukraine. You also just had a meeting. Of course, you had Blinken and Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, respectively, meeting with Vladimir Zelensky in Ukraine. I guess they were in Germany next. They met uh, at a U.S. airbase in Germany to pledge more weapons for Ukraine. Meanwhile, Russia is engaged in some very interesting threats. Very, very interesting threats. You got Sergei Lavrov. The Russian foreign minister telling NATO, hey, 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 uh, there's a risk of conflict here. You might get World War III. Well, of course they did. I'll get to that in a moment. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. What the hell is going on, everybody? Facebook, Tony Katz Radio. You got, you got Getter, Tony Katz. You got Instagram, Tony Katz. You got Twitter, Tony Katz. And Rumble.com slash Tony Katz. That's my name. I use it everywhere. People love it. UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez, or is it Gutierrez? It's not Gutierrez, it's Gutierrez. Sorry. He's calling for a ceasefire. 
while there are talks with uh, Vladimir Putin uh, going on and trying to get some peace talks. It's not going to happen. Guterres said the discussion with Lavrov was frank, but he says he's going to visit Moscow as a messenger of peace. Well, that's good. That's good. Meanwhile, there have been explosions in Moldova. Now, this is a breakaway region. Transnistria. T-R-A-N-S-N-I-S-T-R-I-A is how it's pronounced. Moldova is stepping up security, and rightfully so. I'd be doing exactly the same. Moldova is to the south and to the west of Ukraine, not far from Odessa. Of course, it's Odessa that Russia would absolutely want to have its ability to conquer all the areas of the Sea of Azov and access to the Black Sea. Moldova is right there. And Moldova has been rumored as next on the list. Next on the list for Russia to try and and take. Yes, they have an absolutely ignorant military that is incompetent. Still doesn't take away from the fact that they're murderous bastards and they can kill. Doesn't take away from that at all. Russia has about 1,500 troops based in Transnistria. Broke away from Moldova back in 1992. By the way, I didn't know this off the top of my head. I had to look it up. So now you've got troops there, so you're going to see whether or not you're going to have some level of coordination regarding coming into Odessa from now both sides. What was this explosion? What does it mean? Can't answer that. I do know that they are working on ensuring their security posture. Germany reversing its policy, sending these. They're called Gepard Flakpanzers. Those are anti-aircraft tanks. They're getting technical upgrades before they're being shipped because they've been in storage for about a decade. So Germany's policy was not shipping heavy weaponry to conflict zones. But two things have been happening. The Ukrainians are fighting, and that changes the dynamic because the longer you watch them fight and the longer you don't help the fight, the longer you're the guy not helping the other guy who's getting beat up fight. And that's always, always, always a bad look. Number two... Without question, these NATO allies have figured out Putin's a bad scene, and it's better to let the Ukrainians do the heavy lifting before we have to do the heavy lifting. Might as well give them some guns and some ammo so they could do it their own damn selves. That is the correct position to take. The the only position to take. Everything else is nuts. But Germany getting involved should, should move you to the recognition that finally, finally, we now have a total buy-in from NATO over the idea that they have to protect themselves. This is actually good news for the United States because while they have to protect themselves, let's say they made an argument, an argument I made before. You can't rely on Joe Biden. You can't rely on the U.S. just to bail you out. You had from the Marshall Plan to a month ago, And that's it. From the Marshall Plan to 2022, that was your protection from the United States. 
We protected you from all these other places and all these other threats, and now you're on your own, and they have figured that out. But it's more than that because they have come to realize that the threats that that exist, they can't fully fight without the United States. So they have to take a much stronger posture while ensuring they keep the tight connection to the U.S., Because anybody who is playing this game recognizes that the Russia conversation is not the conversation. The Russia conversation gives way, and then the China conversation becomes the conversation, baby. And Europe has to ask itself, do we take Chinese money and allow China to be the next great superpower? Or do we keep our connection with the United States because China will eventually play the part of Russia in these invasions and they've got a billion people and they have better hardware, a better trained military. At least one could believe at this stage of the game. If NATO isn't playing that game with themselves, they're out of their minds. They're out of their heads. They're only doing this because Vladimir Putin's a threat? No, 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 no. No way. If they are, they're the most short-sighted fools in the world. I really hope they enjoy the labor camps. They have to be playing the long game. And the long game does not involve sending the United States out. There is a unique thing happening as I see it. Which is the recognition of what life is like without the United States. What they will have to deal with, what they will have to fight, what they will have to do to survive. You would have to survive the madness of Vladimir Putin in the final death throes of his life and the life of Russia. They don't have an economy. He himself is rather ill. They don't have a military. Wait till they can't feed themselves. And then what comes in behind to prop up the vassal state of Russia until the domination is, is, is complete, if ever, and that's China. And China aggression, completely different kind of aggression. Because China aggression gets backed with billions of dollars. Now that we know that's how the game is played... We know how this is, 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 is working and coming together. Now uh, we, we can ask uh, bigger, better questions and recognize that there are many European nations, I believe, that have. And what they recognize is that you're going to need the United States one way or another. Even if you can't rely on a Joe Biden type to be a, a rational leader, you can rely on the United States to get you the hardware and weaponry that you're desperately going to need. Which is good for us, because someone's got to pay for that hardware and weaponry. And it lets other people fight the fights so we don't have to. I'm in favor of other people fighting the fights. That make make me cold or, or callous, whatever. I'd rather there were no fights. Don't get me wrong. I only rather there were no fights. But there are fights. If there are going to be fights, I want somebody else to fight them. Let them handle it. 
We'll eventually have to handle it. I just don't want to have to handle it today. And as long as it's happening over there, I say help these people, but don't send troops. Meanwhile, there's an interesting story uh, from Newsweek where Boris Johnson, he has uh, a trade envoy to Ukraine, saying uh, that Germany is not totally our friend. This could be exactly what led to Germany saying, okay, we're going to send tanks. The trade envoy saying that German leaders risk being on the wrong side of history by vacillating on support for Ukraine. Speaking at uh, uh, some council I never heard of, getting into this uh, conversation. Germany's probably a little bit on the wrong side of history here, is what she said. There's pressure coming from everywhere. It's not the only story. Uh, the, 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 the Dow is, is just taking a bath right now. I will have that story. And uh, I, I don't even know where to, where to begin on this um, story about Cedric Richmond. How many more people are going to leave the Biden administration? Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. You get in my way, I'ma feed you to the monster. I'm normal during the day, but at night turn to a monster. When the moon shines like ice, Cedric Richmond leaving the White House. Now you could argue that this is actually a a bigger move for him because he's going to leave. He was the director of White House Office of Public Engagement, senior advisor of President Biden, congressman from Louisiana. And he is now going to be heading over to the DNC in an advisory role. Which means somebody's got to start working on finding candidates who can run for president. And maybe he's the guy to work behind the scenes to do that. Top line, it's just another person getting out of this administration because this administration is ridiculous and and rudderless and lost. These people can't do anything. They can't think, they lack intellect, they lack in- creativity. And so uh, that's got to play a part. Now, Cedric Richmond is one of the guys who can't stand the squad. He very much had opposition to the way they, they do things and, and the hard left push, and it's not how you win elections. Um, she actually, uh, or according to sources, he referred to her and the squad as blanking idiots after the 2020 election. That story just came out like the other day. So it was it was a um it was it's a it's a book. A couple of New York Times reporters say that Cedric Richmond referred to um I I uh Talib and Acacia Cortez as blanking idiots. And there's, there's supposedly some more in this, is that uh, the, the issue is progressives don't understand that they lost. I thought that was an interesting, interesting take, and one worthy of conversation, because I want to know what it means. How did the progressives lose? Counselor to the president, Steve Ricchetti, R-I-C-C-H-E-T-T-I, is it Ricchetti or Ricchetti? I uh, had words for the squad saying uh, that the problem with the left is they don't understand that they lost. Progressives don't think like that. 
Do you not? Do you not understand whom you're dealing with? Progressives don't think like that. If you ask why it is that Representative Ocasio-Cortez would never moderate a position, it's because the brand is built on not moderating. Think Trump. Now, the difference is that Trump actually did moderate on positions. He governed like a conservative because he put people around him who were giving him this information. That's what he followed. But in terms of the brand, he doesn't moderate on the brand. He doesn't, he doesn't do it. It wouldn't, it wouldn't dawn on him to. Why would Ocasio-Cortez ever moderate on the brand? That's insane. And let's now get back into the part two of this, or, or the first part of this, I should say. Why in the world would you think that she lost? Show me the proof of this. That she nominated some people and they didn't win primaries? Well, Trump's about to nominate some people who don't win primaries. I am not convinced that J.D. Vance wins the primary in, in Ohio for the Senate race. Not at all. And there are going to be other places. There's a whole story at Commentary Magazine right now, or Commentary.org, about the waning influence of Trump. I think there's a question about how many years out of the spotlight can you be and still have or, or, or maintain power. You think that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party cares if Barack Obama says this, that, or the other? They don't care. That's nostalgia. They're the future. That's how they view it. Obama wasn't radical enough. Obama wasn't left enough. He wasn't progressive enough. He was a coward on this. He failed on Obamacare that. He didn't get taxes right over here. He didn't get spending uh, correct over there. They, they're relentless. What would make you think that they think they lost? What a ridiculous, ridiculous statement with no basis in fact whatsoever. You think that they think that defund the police is a problem? They're proud of it. They are excited about it. They are desperate for it. People like Cory Bush aren't going to give it up. You make the argument that it turns away the great proportion of America. I won't disagree with this. But they're not in it for you. They're in it for them. You think they're Democrats. You invited these, these lecherous people into your house. What's, what's the story, you know, about the, the scorpion stinging the, 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 the spider carrying across the river? Why'd you sting me? Uh, because this is what I do. Right? Was it the spider? Well, something like that. The progressives aren't Democrats. They want to destroy the Democratic Party. They want communism, and that's it. Not because I said so, but because they said so. It's very, very weird. Of course they're never going to think Of course, of course, they don't think that they lost, and that Democrats think that they that these progressive lost. 
don't understand where the, the, the progressive lives and breathes, how they act, how they think. How you, you can't be this obtuse. As for why Cedric Richmond is leaving, there's only so much of Biden I think one can take. And maybe he was sent to get ahead over to the DNC and try and put some things in order and start getting ready for some elections in 2024. Because 2022 is a lost cause, right? 2022 for the Democratic Party is a lost cause. And there's a possibility that they'll still keep the Senate because you have to win a lot of races and maintain a lot of seats in order to, to, to even get a small advantage. You're not going to have 64 senators. The House, I, I believe, is, is, is a no-brainer. They take the House. Senate's a little more difficult. But progressives aren't after the House or the Senate. They're after the country. And they will be slow and methodical and they don't care what they burn down, they will never change. You let them in, people. Don't forget that, Cedric. I'm Tony Katz.